Hi everyone, this is John from Hey You Guys. Uh, this is the Math Off Podcast. We have a couple of announcements to make just before we get into the main uh, main episode proper. We spoil a few films um, in the uh, in the episode, and it's only now after we've recorded it that we want to just basically warn you. Um, we spoil Wreck 2, I think. Uh, what else do we spoil in the episode, chaps? Uh, the um, I think it's mostly Wreck. <laughs> yeah, we also yeah. So it's it's wrecked to the sixth sense. I mean, that's you know that's like up there with Empire Strikes Back, isn't it? For being spoiled, but and, and I and I didn't spoil Pistol Opera though. I wanted to. Okay, so Brendan wanted to, but he didn't. Uh, Craig also has an announcement to make for himself. Uh, Craig, can you can you do that now? Yeah, I said something stupid. I got Toby Radloff's name wrong, um, which I apologise if Toby Radloff does hear this. I'm I'm deeply sorry because I do I am a big fan of you, and I got your name horribly wrong in a moment of idiocy. Okay, that's so, fine. Sorry. Okay, calm down, Craig. That's fine. Okay. Um, <laughs> so we've had announcements, we've had spoiler tags, and we've also had apologies. Hope you enjoy the show. Are you Hello everyone, welcome to Mouth Off. This is the official podcast of heyyouguys.co.uk. My name's John Lyson, joining me as always we have Craig Skinner and Brendan Connolly. We're going to look through a few of the films that are released this week and also go through a bit of the uh, more interesting bits of film news that we've uh, posted on the site recently. Then we're going to look at our favourites, uh, our Rip from the Crypt section um, at, the end of the, at the end of the episode. So um, before we go into the show proper... Um, I just have to mention something that's uh, happened on the site. We've now got ourselves a lovely new forum, and this was opened a couple of uh, couple of days ago. We've already had people signing up, and it's a pretty much a place just to talk about movies, uh, your favourite movies, movies that you hated, um, new releases, what's coming out, or a couple of films. A bit like Rip from the Crypt, where you can champion a film that maybe other people haven't seen. So uh, you can check it out on the site, heyyouguys.co.uk forward slash forum. So do go uh, and, and check it out, sign up, and then uh, and then get chatting to us, because I think that's going to be a really good place to talk about our favourite subjects. So um, before uh, we go into our main reviews, we've got Rec 2, Agora, and the Killer Inside Me, we're going to talk about those. Um, a couple of other big films that are out at the moment. Uh, first of all, The Losers, which we spoke about three or four weeks ago. Uh, we weren't that impressed with it, um, but do go back and check out the other podcast if you um, if you want to hear our take on it. You can uh, find all of that on the, on the site, heyyouguys.co.uk. Also, I think I'm right in saying Sex in the City is out this week. Am I right, chaps? Yep. Okay, now... Our uh, our um, our writer M is actually going to see it tonight, and I'm hoping to get um, her take on it um, when she's out. But she may be too busy vomiting to uh, to talk to us. So uh, she was a fan of the first one, I think. So it's good that she's going to get a chance to see the second one. It's not had the best word of mouth. Um, obviously, we're not going to review it. But guys, uh, quick, um, let's uh, let's ask you two: Are you looking forward to Sex and City, Craig? Nope. Uh, Brendan. <laughs> no, but it has got Liza in it. Yeah, I've seen some of the trailers and it looks pants. It you looks know, terrible. But Liza. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> there are many, many other good films that you can get just Liza and not have to suffer the vapid handbag advert that was the last one. So we're not even going to talk about Sex and City anymore. So basically, it's going to be crap, isn't it? Let's be honest. Um, but you can look at M's review. Uh, I'm sure she'll have that up over the weekend, if not tomorrow. So, okay, let's talk about some real films for a change. Um, Craig, the first film we're going to look at tonight is Wreck 2. Now, this is the sequel to Wreck, 
as uh, as I'm sure you sure you all know, it was um, a film of 2007 which told the story of a TV reporter who was making a documentary about the day in the life of, uh, of a fire station. They get called away to um, a, a building where some odd things are going on, and, of course, it all goes horribly wrong. Now, not to spoil too much about the first one, um, Craig, it appears that the sequel to Wreck revisits many of the um, same themes and even the same situations of the first one. Uh, before we uh, go into what you thought of it, I take it that you've seen Rick. What did you think of the first film and uh, what did you think of the second? Um, I enjoyed the first one. Um, it, it, I don't think either of the films are masterpieces. I don't think either of them are particularly, you know, glorious horror films. And I've heard maybe, I think, some people overstating how good they are, but I, I found them both very enjoyable. And I think I actually enjoyed the second one more, say... I think uh, the first one perhaps took maybe too long to get going. I'm not sure if... I don't know, the pacing was pretty good towards the end, and they're both like pretty zippy films. They both get along really quick. Um, but I think maybe the second one had the edge a little bit. Okay, so um, take, take, take us through the, uh, the idea of what the second one is. As far as I understand it, um, it's, uh, it's about the same incident as the first one, but they just send a different, a different crew in. Is that, is, is, is that similar? Yeah, I mean, it's. Um, I, I was trying to think actually of any other horror films that do the same thing, where it just uh, the only one I could think of was Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. But they they pick it up literally the second, pretty much the second the first one ends. Wasn't that like Halloween uh, Two as well? I'm sure they did something similar. Hostel Part Two. Okay, okay. So, um, oh, there's a few. <laughs> there's definitely a few. Um, and yeah, I, I really like that idea actually of a sequel that that you can watch the two back to back. And I mean, yeah, I mean, the first one's only like 82 minutes or something. The second one's, I think, still less than 90. So you can double bill these and uh, it, it doesn't take that much time at all. So it's it's almost like one big film. Um, and yeah, they it picks up straight where it left off and it's a group of soldiers going in and they're led by um, a kind of a... He's described as a specialist. I won't uh, describe why because uh, it gives away a bit too much, but they're soldiers led in by this specialist, and you see a lot of the action through their... Um, they have cameras mounted on their helmets. And so it, it's a kind of a similar aesthetic to the first one, but obviously slightly different. And one of the bits that's reasonably good about it is that you have a kind of a picture-in-picture. Picture. So when something's happening to one of them, you can see uh, the monitor in the screen of the other soldier as well which is kind of a nice little thing they've added. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it, I think it. one of the things about the first one that was quite good is it, it really delivers in a kind of a thrilling way. Uh, I think one of the failings maybe was the plot and characters are a bit thin mm. and it, there wasn't much to pull me in apart from the kind of the fun thrill. Uh, but the second one does that really well as well. And like I say, I think it maybe does it a bit better than the first. So... Yeah, I I I, think I really enjoyed them, but yeah, I wouldn't hold them up on a pedestal. But sure. fun films, and I definitely recommend them to horror fans, especially. Would you say that you'd have to see the first one before you see the second one? I wouldn't say you'd have to, but it'd certainly benefit. And I wouldn't recommend anyone doing it the wrong way round because uh, you're going to spoil the enjoyment of the first one. Sure, I mean, I, I think, uh, and I mean, I've been deliberately cryptic in not giving away too much because I think. Although, you know, I'm not bothered too much about spoilers, but if you are, you, you, this film could be easily spoiled. I've got a review up on the site that 
in my opinion, doesn't really give away too much. So if you do want to read a review, that one's reasonably safe. Yes, yeah, I'd, I'd avoid a lot of online reviews. I've deliberately avoided, and uh, I've deliberately avoided your one as well, um, Craig. Just I didn't want to be, didn't want to be spoiled because I saw um, the first film um, just yesterday. I believe I'd never seen it before, and I, I'd had it in my collection for a long time, but I just never got around to watching it. And I thought, as we're talking about the sequel today, I thought I'd take a take a quick look, and I enjoyed it far more than I thought I was going to enjoy it. Um, I enjoyed, even though I knew what was going to happen, even though in a sense I knew that they were. It was a, a TV um, program that kind of goes horribly wrong. Um, I really enjoyed um, the the setup. I thought that it never got too stale. I think that it was slightly overused, but there were some really good moments, um, particularly as uh, you know, as as was seen um, when they sort of you know, go go towards the end of the film and um, things start to happen that that are, that are pretty nasty. But um, I wasn't too sure about them doing the same thing again with with Rec Two because, of course, you've got um, things like. Blair Witch and and Cloverfield as other sort of found footage films. Um, if you were to do a sequel to those, um, you might have to sort of maybe choose a, a different technique, like they did for for, for Blair Witch Two, which was of course a very different film to the to the first one. That was like a deliberate um, that was sort of set up deliberately in opposition to the first one. Um, but I enjoyed Wreck quite a lot. I thought it was really um, effective in what it. Did. I thought it didn't it didn't blow me away. I didn't think it was you know one of the finest type films. I thought it actually relied too much on the on the setup and on the um, uh, you know the device of the handheld camera and and that and it you know the the characters initially um, did seem a bit pointless and I didn't really care about any of them. But um, I was kind of interested to see how they were going to move that technique on of the of the cameraman capturing this stuff as if it was happening in sort of you know real life and uh, and real time. Um, so I am quite looking forward to to Rec Two, even if to see you know how they are going to you know it's it's not for the story though, and that's half my problem. I'm not going to look at it and think I want to know more about what I saw in the first film. You want to kind of go back and 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 have the experience again because I thought the experience of it was where it succeeded most. Um, Brendan, what about you uh, and and the Rec films? Where do you stand? I think they're rubbish, um, absolute crap. Really, I think the first one was one of the most banal. Uh, and, and and tedious in this chain of camcorder films. Don't hold back, Brendan. You tell us what I you think, think. I think it really compared very, uh, very badly alongside Romero's Diary of the Dead, which was a film that engaged with, um, you know, media democracy and uh, lots of uh, timeless social issues as well. But Wreck was effectively a video game without the interactivity. Um, and just at the end when it threatened to become uh, at least interesting on an aesthetic level when Chris Cunningham's skinny grandma turns up, um, uh, it, it just finishes. Um, and though there is some sort of follow-through on that in the in the second one, and the nature of the specialist Craig is talking about hints uh, a twist on the, the zombie film, shall we say, uh, if indeed we can call it that, but a twist on the zombie film that's uh, fresh, it has, it, it says nothing. It says nothing. So effectively what we've got is, is um, uh, a, a, just a linear journey uh, in each film uh, in which nothing is discussed, nothing is raised, no, there's no subtext of, of any consequence, and the entire thing is based on a fallacy because you're told this is real footage, so you're forced to engage with the nature of the footage, and you know it's not real footage. Are you saying that you know it because you're seeing it as a film or because you just because know in the back of your mind? Because these things aren't real. 
Yeah, sure. But it's it's you know it's, like, no, but it's it's like a ghost train, isn't it? That's that's kind of what I thought this this yeah, film was ghost like. Trains, ghost trains aren't scary; they just make you anxious. There's an important difference. It, in what sense would you say? I don't know if I'm missing it. In what sense would you say it's not real, Brendan? Well, <laughs> well, you know, last time I was in an apartment block in Spain and it got overrun by um, uh, foaming mouth lunatics, they weren't the things that they are in the Rex series. Again, not to say what they are, because that would be... But um, um, I think the um, my point is that when you watch a film shot with what we would call traditional film language and the diegesis is created with absolutely no reflection on the camera being there... Um, it works more like a dream. It works more like a, a sort of out-of-body experience. The the artifice uh, of the film should fade away, and there shouldn't be an aesthetic gap between you and the film. But in these films, you're expected to be complicit in some sort of notion that um, some sort of notion that that there is some found footage that was real, and you're playing along with this game. You're playing along with, you know, like when you're watching Blair Witch, you're watching a story within a story, and the outer story is not there. Now, that's fine from a very postmodern point of view, but doing it when it actually adds nothing to the discourse is actually just weakening the shock value. And if I really want to shock you, or make you anxious, or put you on edge, or frighten you, this is absolutely not the route to go down, to go as far as possible. Now, if you execute this perfectly, it may be far better than a, a less well-executed film in, quotes traditional film language, but if I executed a film in traditional film language perfectly, it was shameless. So unless there's some sort of reason for the text to be written in this, in this very arch way... Uh, it, it's a ridiculous sacrifice and it's pointless. Okay, so what about any of the other sort of camp or found footage uh, films that have been out? Um, have any of them succeed on, on that level for you? Well, I think, I mean, in Diary of the Dead, it's the, it's the nature of what the film's about, right? The film sure. is about camcorder footage and it, it discusses that and it discusses how it can be edited and point of view and citizen democracy or, or in journalism and... Uh, how real that is or isn't and how things are filtered through media and he does brilliant stuff where he takes actual footage from the aftermath of Katrina and, and, and entwines that and reflects upon how real footage actually is real can be recontextualised in a way that changes its meaning which was what was going on in the news at the time and so on and so on and so on so it's very very much part of the, the tapestry of what he's talking about now of course that it does mean that that um, uh, you know, he's got some sacrifice and some trading on the fronts that I'm saying that these films fail on. But, but he's done it for a reason. He's done it for a very vivid reason. And I think the reason to do it that it's, quote, more real is, is patently ridiculous. Soderbergh, Steven Soderbergh's film Full Frontal is a great exploration of these, no, these notions. And the idea that, quote, documentary footage is more real, I mean, he just executes that idea, he just shoots it in the head. Because it's just nonsense. It isn't more real. Mm. You know what I mean? Fake documentary footage is always and always will be con- sort of semi-consciously held in the audience's mind as fake. You don't raise the issue of the nature of the footage mm. and you don't have that to deal with. You don't that- have that to get over I, I think you know it's like it's like a veil between the audience and the, and the film um I, I, I also just think you know just uh oh there's some of them there's some more of them oh no there's some more of them oh they could come from left or they could come from right who gives a damn i mean yeah. really there's nothing there's what does it matter what I, I mean I, I suppose that you would get people who would be 
in the same way that you would have people queuing up outside of roller coaster, you'd have people who were queuing up outside Wreck or Wreck Two. Um, there is a there is a, a device. Obviously, you know the camp would have found footage um, a device which um, which enables this um, you know this film to kind of to to have its shock, to have its you know its value. And I enjoyed how, it. How, it was. Explain to me how you think it does that because I don't understand what what it adds. I don't understand what it adds, other than some sort of novelty. Well, partially it is the novelty, in the same way that a roller coaster or, or a ghost train is is a novel experience, and, and you would happily go into it knowing it. I think that people who would go into enjoy Wreck and Wreck 2, I mean, that, that's certainly what I enjoyed out of it, was the fact that it was a bit unusual, it was a kind of a different way of seeing it, and it, and it was a ride. Don't get me wrong, I, I, I agree, it, it, it doesn't go any deeper than that, but I think the reason that the... Especially the first rec film, got, you know, did so well relatively was because it offered people um, that notion of escapism, uh, being able to live that experience as if they were there, and it's, that comes from you know, d- you know, the l- last decade of reality TV, and you know, and, and, and but from it beyond. doesn't enable you to live that experience as though you were there. That's exactly what it doesn't do. It enables you to see it through the point of view of a camera that never actually was doing what this camera was doing. Uh, it's just it doesn't enable but, you to live. But, did, but Brendan, did you actually feel that in something like Diary of the Dead that you were actually there? Because I, I no, mean, but I, that's not the point. That's exactly my point. That's not the point in Diary of the Dead. You can never attain that with one of these films. But in Diary of the Dead, as I said, he he sacrificed that as a compromise to bring into his text as point of discussion. Um, uh, truth in media and editability of, of of recorded media and points. Of, do you know what I mean? I mean, it became it became mm-hmm. a discourse on the video camera, mm. right? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and I that's think really not what's going on with Blair Witch or, or or any of these. And I think okay, let's just forget and let's just pretend that this isn't an issue. I still don't think any of them are successful on other terms as Cloverfield, simply because at Cloverfield's heart. There's a there's a simple got to get to the girl redeem myself save the relationship emotional sort of sto- do you know what I mean story yeah. uh, where's even that layer in the wreck films it's surely it's it's a case of I'm I'm in this situation they've gone terrible I need to escape I need to I need to not die you know the emotion here is is fear it's terror isn't it and that's what but that's not any and, different and, and I mean actually just. Just in a horror film, fear, fear itself is, although I, I entirely agree that it doesn't have a lot more, which, you know, like I say, I thought the, the characters and the plot was, was thin, but I think for a lot of people in a horror film, fear is enough if it manages to get that fear in them. And I mean, when at the screening I was at, I, I don't generally jump at films, but at the screening I was at, there were people jumping, like, like physically but, so but that's shocked, not fear. Like Jumping is not fear. I can make anybody jump. It's mm-hmm. the simplest thing in the world. It's actually really an- annoying to me that every year I have to teach three months on the quotes of shock cinema to my students. And they all come back with their first thing thinking that the only mechanic for creating suspense is music. And they all come back with a sort of understanding that there's, you know, the lull in the music and the stab in the music is all there is to it. And I know why oh, they yeah, think no, that. No, because no, 75% I... of filmmakers think that too. I, I despise that too. I mean, that is, I mean, so much, a glut of horror is ruined by that obsession with the kind of shock music stab of, you know, loud they, violins they to make the jump. They but definitely I think, try a sound effect variant on that in the rec films. Yeah, I, I, 
I can see where you're coming from. I mean, let's let's kind of just draw us to a close because we can probably talk about you know um, the notion of what makes an effective horror for ages. But um, I. Uh, I, I can really understand what you're saying, Brendan. I think that there are some films which which do it a lot better. Um, I am quite interested to see how Rec Two plays out. I, I like I said, I did enjoy the first one. It didn't move me on any you know deep emotional level, but I think it was a good experience. Um, Rec Two is out, I think, tomorrow um, in the UK. So uh, if, if you do see it and you agree with either um, either party here, then then do let us know. Um, you can. And, and let's just say this: in about forty years, when the twist is as well known as Planet of the Apes. We can come back and maybe discuss what the influence of Spain being a Catholic country and things like that were on it, because that's where it might start to get interesting. Was, Talking not about the film, but about the film's context. See, I would love to do that because it really hinted at it um, at the end of the first one, and maybe we can do like a spoiler. Um, you know, maybe we, we can revisit that um, in a future podcast. You know, when we've all seen it, and we can discuss maybe the implications of it because that is the only bit that, that kind of you know really does um, engage you on a you know on a level other than the fact that you know you're just seeing this stuff play out in front of you all right um let's move on to a slightly different um a slightly different type of film uh brendan you want to talk about this one this is agora um by uh, another spanish film another spanish film absolutely and um this is uh the latest film by uh, alejandro amenabar who did the others um and when i uh wrote uh, when i responded to to brendan's post about this on the forum i said i've only seen the others um as part of his filmography do you recommend any of the any of the rest and uh, brendan you were kind of positive T- tell us first about your relationship with the with the filmmaker and then um tell us a bit about this film what well, my relationship yeah he's my boyfriend uh no um uh first <laughs> I of his films it. i saw was some years ago it's been called tasis which means thesis um and it was a horror film actually, um, and uh, Tartan put it out in the UK. Um, and the premise of this film, his first, you know, quite professional film, was a girl writing a thesis on snuff movies gets in beyond her depth. And it was played in quite a real way. It was not 8mm. Um, and I thought this was a filmmaker of real potential, and I was really interested in, in seeing how he developed. And then his second film came along, uh, Abre La Oja, so Open Your Eyes, which um, actually became a bit of a cult hit right off the bat. Um, and um, it's the film that then became the basis for Vanilla Sky. And I've got to say, I like Open Your Eyes, but I think Vanilla Sky is one of the most rich, complicated and subversive films I've ever seen in my entire life um, and, and, and does something wonderful with Open Your Eyes and, and goes beyond it but, but, but I did like Open Your Eyes and then came The Others. Now what's happening here is I think each of his films is, is better than the last and The Others is a kind of a twist on, on you know uh, the turning of the screw, turning of the screw and, and so on and I think it's um, uh, a, a very solid well executed clever ghost story that makes one major mistake it holds a twist off to the end whereas actually there would have been greater emotional resonance if somewhere around the start of the third act that twist had been revealed and we could have played out most of the action of the the, the, you know some of the key beats would have been revealed afterwards but i think it was very popular at that time particularly with ghost stories to to try and compete with the sixth sense and that sort of wallop moment um, and then his next wait, film wait, was Brendan. Yes, Brendan is it sense a ghost story. What the, you, you're totally ruining it for me. I'm not actually Craig because <laughs> because there's ghosts from minute five. 
Do you know the crazy thing is I've never actually seen The Sixth Sense. <laughs> Are you serious? And and is that a case that you don't know what the twist is? No, no, I'm teasing about that, but I actually oh, haven't watched it. But I obviously know the twist. It's oh, got okay. to be the most. Um, the world, yeah, but, uh, if yeah. You, if you were to have seen the film, you'd understand why what I was saying wasn't hitting a twist, but now we've actually blown it by having this extra conversation afterwards. <laughs> spoilers for the sixth sense, yeah. Um, you don't uh, have to say spoilers. But, you know, sense. as we said, it's like one of those ones that 99% of people know what it is. That's very it? true, yeah, yeah. I thought, Craig, you were the only person who has never heard of it and never, never heard of twist. <laughs> I, I can, can I brag a little bit? You can. I sound like a real brat. I was at the first UK screening of The Sixth Sense and I turned to the people sat next to me on each side about eight minutes in and accurately predicted what the twist was. <laughs> and I pointed out you. what bit of film language kind of gave it away. Can you tell us now what bit of film Smug. language gave it away? No, because that's a complete spoiler. But no, it it's an matter. edit. It's an edit. Okay, interesting. It's an edit that's unusually timed, shall we say. Oh, I think I know what you're talking about. Okay, that's interesting. Well, Craig, go, go and see it and see if you can pick it out, because that would be, be good to do. Right, let's drag this back. Let's, let's, get, back, back. let's get back on track. Then Amenabar made a film called See Outside. Uh, sorry, See Inside. How can I get that wrong? The See Inside, um, which is tr- tremendous. Um, uh, Javier Bardem's central performance is, is truly wonderful. And the way that Amenabar talks about uh, uses the camera to create senses of space and claustrophobia and ties that into the story of a, of a, a, a quadriplegic is, is amazingly powerful and it's a very rich, clever, cinematic telling of a very uh, emotional but also very visceral story. Mm. And I thought, okay, better that then, sucker. Uh, and he has! <laughs> and he's made this film called Agora, which I think is just tremendous and the reason we're discussing it now is that i mentioned it on the forums and you said hey it's not got much love let's let's talk about it yeah so i'll, I'll pitch it basically um alexandria location of the of the great library um towards the end of the roman empire and they're making some policy changes they're now letting the christians exist and this changes you know, culture and the Christians start to raise in dominance and get more and more supporters. And in the agora, which is like the meeting or debate space in the middle of, of Alexandria, a lot of conflicts play out, play out first of all, between Christians and pagans later Christians and Jews. And we see most of this through the eyes of uh, a philosopher or to us, uh, a mathematician um, called Hypatia, who's played by Rachel Weisch and her students. And we see her students grow up and go down different paths and, and choose different religious beliefs. And another key character is the slave of her father. So it tells a sort of a, a, a partly a ro- romance in, in, in some respects, but also a very personal story about how Hypatia's atheist and, and rationalist beliefs in a time of great religious upheaval. Um, and um, her you know, her her reason and her acceptance of people while others around are not so accepting. Um, but it's also a story about mathematics. And it's quite a thrilling story of mathematic, mathematical discovery. And it quite cinematically deals with some uh, ideas of how the universe works that were quite clearly, clearly communicated to people, definitely people I went with who weren't... Um, they're not exactly Renaissance people, shall we say. Their, their, their knowledge of science is not great. Could absolutely comprehend these ideas almost intuitively from the way that they were represented in the film. And it's not artifice. It's not silly things coming up on the screen in a beautiful mind. It's just actually the representation of 
of, of Hypatia and her, her teachings. Now, um, it's an epic. It's like the classic epics. We've got people in sandals. We've got people with swords. There's blood. Um, there's amazing production design by Guy Hendricks, uh, Guy Hendricks Diaz, who can like basically build an entire you know city out of two coke cans and a twenty pound note. And working on a, a relatively small budget, he's created this wonderful replica of Alexandria that, to a very large extent, was actually there and is very tangible. Um, and, and you know the, the the costumes are good, and the lighting is wonderful. The music's good. It's a very very strong piece of filmmaking. Okay, and I was just looking, uh, checking this out, and apparently, I think it premiered in Cannes last year, and it's taken its time to kind of uh, find its way over to our screens. I mean, it was released here in the UK, um, I think, about a month ago, um, and didn't get a huge push. And I think it's out in America tomorrow. I think it's out in New York tomorrow. Um, and then I think it'll kind of spread, but I don't think it'll spread very oh, far. I'm not sure it'll spread at all. Yeah. No. Um, so certainly some people may be may be able to see it, but um, it's kind of a shame because you have you know you have films like this, and obviously you know I've, I, I I can't say this from experience, but it it, it sounds um, you know incredibly vivid and inc- you know we just engaging um on a kind of different level let you know let's let's talk about how how wreck engages you and then let's talk about how this engages you there's something that's just in 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 a different class it sounds like but it's just a shame that this is not playing um you know uh in 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 very many cinemas um around the world i mean we um i think i found on find any film that it was available uh in a few places in central london i think if you're interested go and see it i think it's still playing um but uh i think it's going to be a dvd or a blu-ray isn't it for most people um what about i've been to see it in the cinema twice and the first time i went it wasn't too full and then I did, I do like a local radio broadcast here and myself and the host, we, we, we talked it up and mm-hmm. then it started selling out. See, that's right? good. That's your power. Uh, and now, well, it's not my power. I, I was invited to be on this show. I was lucky to be on this show. If anyone had done it, right? Sure. It, it would, um, but I tell you what, that is a little bit gratifying, isn't it? Let's be honest. To just think that actually these people have seen something that's, provocative and and you know i have something i was invested in do you mm. know what i'm saying yeah yeah absolutely they, they went to that instead of iron man 2 not to slate iron man 2 or street dance 3d not to slate Street Dance 3D. they went to see agora and i just thought wow you yes. know maybe yes. people just need it people just need a bit of encouragement sometimes well also i think most people need to know about it i hadn't really heard about that you know that much but especially if, the, if this you know, premiered in Cannes last year it's had a year to kind of build any kind of momentum any kind of buzz whatever and it kind of just you know it, it, it was released here with not much you know hoopla there was not an awful lot of um, you know press about it um, there was a few bits here and there but it can just pass it by it's kind of buried under the weight of things like Iron Man 2 and if if this podcast if the website that you know websites that we right for mean anything it's that we encourage films that we think could really you know affect people so i'd be interested to see actually if, if anyone has seen it and they do agree then they do get in touch craig what about you are you um did, have you been to see this are, are, you, are you you know planning on catching it at all um yeah oh, definitely upon brendan's recommendation um i mean yeah it's, i did pass me by a bit i remember i vaguely remember it playing can i i'm saw the title coming up in you know timeout film guide and stuff like that but yeah it, it obviously didn't have a good publicity because it did well may or might have just been me but it certainly passed me by a bit I, I didn't even actually realize it was the same director um as the films that brenda mentioned um especially yeah. not open your eyes i mean i hadn't realized that even 
I would have thought they would have sold that more in the posters. Maybe they did, and I didn't see them. But um, yeah, I I hadn't realised that. I suppose one of the problems is if you have you know from the director of the others somewhere over this, you'll be expecting a ghost story. I'll kind of imbue it with you know a bit a bit of prejudice. But um, what about um, the cast? Because obviously Rachel Vice is um, you know is the sort of the the poster girl, if you like, for this film. Did she do a good job in this, Brendan? Yeah, she's she's great in it, actually. She's great. It's one of the best performances I've ever seen her give. There's an early scene in which she's commanding her class, which is um, both naturalistic but also full of the real command that somebody like Hypatia w- w- would have had, but, you know, it's not bombastic. Mm. And and um, her reason is, is there. I mean, she, she's got the reason. She plays the, the intelligence and, and, and rationale perfectly. And also the humanity of the character and the, the tolerance of the character and she embodies it so well and she's got that kind of crooked smile that, that she, she drops a couple of times and, and and it's just like my god that was perfect casting <laughs> I mean you know it when you see it right it's just it's perfect casting Oscar Isaac who was um, uh, also Robin Hood is in here and it's interesting he plays him with the same accent which I'm assuming is his accent um, and both filmmakers, both Ridley Scott and Amenabar, have used it to, to denote certain things about about the character, which is, I think, a perfectly acceptable, perfectly acceptable convention. Um, Max Minghella is is good in Agora too. He's he's um, he's never been this good actually. This is his best best turn. But I I think the star is Amenabar um, and um, and Matteo Gil, who co-wrote the screenplay with him. Okay, well it sounds like that. You know, it sounds like a good film to catch up with if you can. That's that, like I said, that was out in the UK um, last month, and I believe it is still playing. If you're interested, uh, certainly it's still playing in London, and it's out in the US. Well, if it's even out in the US, it'll be over the next couple of weeks. So do check it out if you fancy it. It'll be over there buying the placards. Yeah. Okay. Um, before before we move on, and I go take a, a sort of spoon of humility juice mm-hmm. um, and try and chill out a bit. You mentioned find any film, and I, I think it's worth actually pointing out to the listeners what that is. Mm. I think it's tremendous. Well, I actually only found it because I think you you mentioned it on the podcast last week, Brandon. I mean, from what I understand is, um, is it a UK website? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, This this is literally my experience of trying to find where uh, Agarra was playing. Um, Findanyfilm.com, I believe, is the is is the web address for it, Um, and you can type in um, the the name of the film that you're looking for, and it will tell you if it's a playing. In cinemas, it'll, it'll tell you if it's out on DVD, if it's available to watch instantly, all those kinds of things. Um, and like I said, when I clicked on Agarit, I found out it was playing in, you know, uh, in the Odeon Covent Garden, and it of course gave me a nice little map and everything, um, along with trailers. I mean, that, that that's just my experience. Brendan, do you use that? Do you use the website often? Um, well, generally, because I'm only seeing stuff locally, no. But um, I think it was, I, I mentioned it last week because I, it dawned on me that we don't know where people listening to us are and we can't second guess whether they're near a screening of Heartless or Agora. Mm. I just think it's worth underlining how useful it is. And having a look at some of these smaller release films, how far away from you they are. Mm. And you can tag them and it will alert you if they come within, I think, 50 miles of you. Um, and I just think that's just a brilliant service. That's a great idea. I mean, actually, I, I did check out Heartless as well because um, I knew that I was, you know, planning on seeing it. And of course, it told me that it was available through um, uh, to rent, you know, on uh, 
on various services that you know, exist over the internet, stuff like that. So I realised that even if I couldn't see it at the cinema, I could actually just, you know, rent it at any time. And that kind of blew my mind. So I didn't realise that it was being distributed that way. So, yeah, findanyfilm.com. Do, do, do use it because it sounds, I mean, I had great fun with it. And I think I didn't know about the extra functionality. So, um, so thanks for that, Brendan. OK, um, let's move on. We're going to talk about uh, The Killer Inside Me, which is the, the latest film from uh, director Michael Winterbottom. Now, um, you saw this, didn't you, Craig? And then there was a, a Q&A at the end uh, with the director, I believe. Um, tell us a bit about the film. Tell us your reaction. And then we can talk about the, uh, the Q&A and the various different uh, um, things that were discussed there. Yeah, well, it's the latest film from Michael Winterbottom. And it's uh, I think it's his first all-American film that he's made. Um, it's not exactly a Hollywood film. Um, it's... I, I think he described it afterwards as an, an American uh, as an independent film, which I'm not sure it's wholly you could consider it independent depending on how you look at it. But it, it's certainly more more independent than your regular Hollywood blockbuster. Um, and it stars Casey Affleck, Jessica Alba, and Kate Hudson. Now, normally a cast that includes Jessica Alba and Kate Hudson probably put me off a bit. I'd be maybe prejudging what they would perhaps be in. But um, it's a very, very interesting film, and uh, it's caused a lot of controversy, which it's hard to talk about the film without mentioning the controversy. Um, There were walkouts uh, at Sundance. Uh, Michael Winsbottom's had some people kind of shouting at him at Q&As. He's not been very popular after the film's been made, although it has had its fans as well. And... um, yeah, I'm certainly one of them. It's uh, it's a really interesting film. It's uh, Casey Affleck plays a sheriff, a, a deputy sheriff, called Lou Ford. It's um, it's based on Jim Thompson book, which is a kind of film noir, late fifties, I think. And uh, I don't know how much to give away, really. I don't know whether I think the trailer how much makes do you it guys pretty know? clear. Well, um, from what I understand, he uh, he's a sheriff, but he's also a serial killer. I think that the, the, the trailer gave that away. Is that correct? I, I mean, I've heard it described like that, but I wouldn't... I mean... Uh, I, he's more I of a sociopath, in a sense, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, he's... he's Yeah, he's more of a... I don't know whether to say whether or not he does kill people, but he's a very violent, nasty man. Yeah, as Brendan says, a sociopath. I mean, you could perhaps describe him like that, but it's not exactly the best way to encapsulate his character i'd say and probably most interesting about from what i gather about jim thompson's novel and also the film is that it's told entirely first person perspective um in in a very in a film noir tradition we get a kind of a very film noir voiceover and um the fact that you see all the events from lou ford casey affleck's character's perspective kind of it makes it a bit a more difficult film to watch, I think, because it places you in his position, and you're very used to in films placing yourself with the protagonist, uh, Lou Ford, the character. He, he's on screen, I think, pretty much every second of the film, um, and you hear his voiceover, and you see the events from his perspective. I think there's even an argument to be made that you're seeing it from uh, his very subjective and not necessarily reliable perspective. Um, I was going to so say your it, place for it. Sorry, Craig, I was going to say it sounds a bit like it's the uh, it's it's the unreliable narrator 
um, you know, taking I, you through. You it. can certainly describe it. You can certainly describe it like that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's there's a sense of ambiguity to that, but there's certainly a couple of moments where you think, really, is is that actually what happened, or is that what he thinks, how sure. he's viewing it? And also, it does a couple of interesting things that if I say them, it they sound they sound kind of that like they could be weak, but there's moments where he almost looks at the camera. I don't, even goes far as to say he does look at the camera, and there's almost a wry grin on his face sometimes. Um, is, he, is that like directly uh, addressing the audience, or is that kind of looking in on himself a little bit? I don't know what happens. I don't know what the context I, of that is. I think it's. I think it's very much mm, like looking at the audience, but I think I'm, I wouldn't go too far in your mind thinking about that because it's not. It's not like Ferris Bueller or. Uh, or Woody Allen, you know, it's he's not like that. He's not like addressing the camera or anything like that. It's not, you know. Uh, but it, it, you just get the sense. I mean, even when you don't get those kind of asides that look almost like they're at the camera, you get a feeling that he's almost not exactly self-aware as a character, but you get a sense that yeah, there's there's something he's telling his story. You're listening to his story. He's telling you what's happening, not you're seeing what's happening. So it certainly makes you think perhaps some of these things that I'm seeing might not be quite the truth. And does that affect the outcome or does that affect your in any way sort of empathy or sympathy with the character? It certainly affects the way you feel about the character, yeah. And I think that's one of the ways the film is most interesting. I think it's caused a lot of the controversy in part because of this way it makes you feel almost implicit and that you're uncomfortable because you're you're him in in a very kind of simplistic sense. So when he commits acts of violence, it almost feels as if you are. And I think it's also controversial, though, for a reason which I think is terrible, which appears to be that it's because it's Hollywood actresses that are feeling the violence. I mean, I think a lot of arguments have been made about uh, a misogynistic angle to the film, which... I, th- I mean, I mean, I, I think it has that, but I think that character has that, not the film. And I think it's quite a big distinction. And I think a lot of the, a lot of the critical response that seems to be kind of decrying the violence is perhaps misunderstanding the film to an extent and getting a bit carried away with the fact that it's Jessica Alba. Um, That's really that involved. I, I do wonder if I mean I, I hadn't thought about that. I'd heard about the the problems people have had with the violence um, and the misogyny. And I thought, well, that's, you know, obviously I haven't seen the film, so I can't, you know, sort of comment on it directly, but that's part and parcel when you have a film, you know, of, of, of this nature. I'd never thought about, you know, uh, about it in the sense that it's it's people that are, you know, uh, Kate Hudson, Jessica Alba, who are, you know, not used to them, maybe not used to this kind of film, and we're not used to seeing them in that way, that people would get kind of up in arms and would, you know, kind of go crazy. Um, and, um, and as well, people, I think, perhaps feel like they know them in a in a kind of strange sort of way whereas i mean i don't it sounds kind of childish and simplistic to say it but i've seen worse in film mm. um but i've not heard controversy about films that are worse and i think perhaps that's because people haven't maybe seen them or people have seen them but they didn't have people they knew or felt they knew or had stars in them and they they didn't feel as high profile and that's, I, I think that does make a big difference. I wonder if that was deliberate by 
you know, Michael Winterbottom, I assume that what he would have got is he would have got the right people for the role. And, you know, he's not setting out to sort of, you know, um, to offend, I wouldn't have thought, deliberately by casting someone like Jessica Alba in it. Um, no, Brenda- that, that was actually my question. I was going to ask him, oh. but um, someone, I had my hand up at the same time as someone else, and they asked a very similar question. So I didn't really want to say the, the same thing again. But they asked about the casting and he responded that they were making an American film. They were in America. Uh, there was a studio to an extent involved and they had a casting process where these actors and actresses came along and that's who they cast. Well, I, I don't know if he's been a little evasive there, but I can imagine when you've got a fair bit of money involved and you've already cast Casey Affleck, which I think they had from the beginning, you're probably not going to end up with unknown female leads. Sure. Okay, that makes sense. Um, before we could talk about, a bit more about the Q&A, Brendan, um, are you a fan of Winterbottom or have you, are you planning on seeing no. this film? Okay, tell us why. I'll watch it. Because I don't think he's a very good filmmaker. Um, I think he's he's very pleased with his artifice. This is going to be the same song from me every week, John, when you ask me (laughs) this question about filmmakers. Um, I don't think he's very good at all. I think he's quite smug. I think he makes bad choices. Um, uh, I think what what Craig just quoted him as saying is probably very sincere and honest, though. Um, Yeah. I'm, I'm I'm not hopeful t- too much. I mean, I, I wonder how it's going to compare to the to the 1970s version of the film with with Stacey Keach, which you know wasn't terrible, just kind of didn't really cut it. Um, as far as films go about uh, somebody who's supposed to be uh, morally responsible and a pillar of the society, but they let us in on their secret uh, disintegration. Uh, but can we even believe it? Is it an interior disintegration? I mean, you know, um, there's quite a few of those. It's got a lot of competition on that front. Um, I'm not particularly um, optimistic about it, though I, I think Casey's fine. I, I, I think Kate Hudson's been, been good before. I've never really cared much for, for Jessica Alba, though I'm sure she's perfectly okay. Um I just don't think there's anything that's really tickling my my, my fancy about it. But I will I will watch it, and I'm, I'm very intrigued to see how this controversy plays out because because I think Craig's right in in the respect that you know when people all run out decrying I don't know hostile too for misogyny, it's utterly utterly missed the point. No, these are the actions of misogynists. The point of view of some of the characters is not necessarily the point of view that the film's even stating, and you're being willfully ignorant to pick up on that, I think, at times. And I think um, so. a film like Halloween and the so supposed sort of morality of, of Mike Myers by, by killing people who smoke pot or who have sex and all these sort of things is supposedly the morality that the film is supposed to share. What? We're supposed to be rooting for Mike Myers? That's totally not how that film's set up. So, I mean, we see, you know, obviously that's a very extreme example, but we see more subtle iterations of that all the time. I would imagine it's probably, probably one of them, because in, in Thompson's pulpy, exploitative sort of literature, um, I don't think that, that... I don't think... I think it works something like kick-ass, in the sense that there is supposed to be a thrill of danger, there is a cheap thrill that is vaguely irresponsible, but at the same time, we're not supposed to be leaping headfirst into it and in- endorsing it. Do you know what I mean? It's trying to... It's not trying to have his cake and eat it. It's not. It's not that, it's not that clever, but it's just that Thompson was okay for it to be a little bit scandalous. 
no matter what the repercussions were, because that scandal is a is a sheen and, and, a, and a frisson of power that that gives his, it gives his book something. And I, I would imagine um, it would be very hard to make a film of this story that didn't at least have an element of that in it. Um, Craig, in the Q and A that you attended, um, were any of these things brought up, um, or was it just kind of a loving? Uh, no, it, it wasn't a loving. I mean, there there was a smattering of reasonably interesting questions, and then it was quite weird. Actually, they said we've got time for one more question, but then that one was a bit of a short one, so they went for one more. And the final question was uh, from a woman uh, who said that she was pretty much unhappy with the violence, and it was they mentioned the violence in the, the main Q and A, but uh, there was no real audience reactions about the violence or, or, or really the controversy. There wasn't that much talked about it although obviously it did come up a fair bit. But um, she asked a question. It was a very strange question because she said um, that she felt it wasn't so much, it seemed, I think, that she felt the violence was unnecessary, but that she felt the violence went on for too long and that she felt it was over the top in length. And uh, Michael Winterbottom responded that he kind of felt that was subjective because it may have been too long for her, but... Was it too long for someone else? Well, that, that's a really that interesting question, isn't it? And 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 and, and mm. can you just give us some indication we've gone of how long this is? What is what is the length we're talking about? Um, do you know, I, it, it's a weird one because I I think probably because I was reasonably caught up in the film, I I didn't really get a good idea of how long it was. For I mean, for me, it, yeah, it was it was long enough to feel quite uncomfortable and not like I wanted to watch it anymore. So, but I think that's probably a good thing. And I think he, at that point, he made an interesting point that he said, well, it's kind of good if it made you feel uncomfortable. I didn't want you to be happy with its length in a way. I wanted, I mean, I didn't say it quite like that, but he he said it's the right response almost for you to feel uncomfortable. And it brought to mind... um, uh, Haneke's funny games and the way Haneke came up with this idea that he kind of he said, I can't remember the exact thing he said but that he wanted people to leave his film and they, he didn't want them to finish it and I always kind of disliked that argument and although I liked the first funny games the original, I didn't kind of agree with what Haneke was kind of this moral crusade almost that he did with the film but I really appreciate that Winterbottom had had kind of sat in the editing room and gone this is starting to make me feel uncomfortable. And, and the producer was on stage as well, and he said the same thing, that he watched it and he didn't want to watch it anymore. There was a point where he didn't want to watch it and he still had to watch it a bit more. Or there's at least more, it was still on screen a bit more. There's a more clinical way to look at this. Um, there have been very cognitive studies into um, particularly the way certain drugs affect people's emotional responses to stimulus, right? Um, and... Um, uh, so certain people who are epileptic are given certain drugs. For exa- this is just a for example, right? That when they are shown an image of somebody getting punched in the face and blood comes out, their response is delayed, okay? But to get a baseline for this and to understand some of the thinking behind this and to be able to talk about the drugs, what had to happen, people had to understand a response system to stimulus like that. How long does it take? What happens if it's... Pro- prolonged does it evolve and we've got some understanding that actually at some point violence does become quite uncomfortable but beyond that point of it becoming quite uncomfortable um what what's the point 
do, do you understand? Do you understand? So, so mm. when this woman, this woman's answer might have been that um, she appreciates the violence, but she thought it was too long. She may have been saying that it was uncomfortable anyway. But beyond the point at which it was uncomfortable, if she could look at a watch and see the minute hand go all the way around another time, um, I, I, I suppose another way of rephrasing that is like, well, at this point. Everyone's been uncomfortable for a while. Are we pushing? Are we nosing into an area where it starts becoming fetishistic? Um, and I yeah, think, I, I, I think that's an incredibly there. interesting point. I think. Sorry, Brandon. Sorry, I talked at the end. What were you going to say? Sorry. No, no, no. I was just going to say that, that there there will be if we if we could look at these these studies, there would be some evidence here that gives us some information about this sort of graph of cognition to these sort of stimulus and I don't know off the top of my head but I know these studies are out there and I know that I've looked at them before I, yeah I mean I, I totally understand that sort of response from watching a lot of films that have had you know uncomfortable images and I mean um, obviously Irreversible comes to mind as well and they, they mentioned that in the, the first Q&A and I think, I think the question that she was asking was more in line with that it got to a point that it had gone on so long she felt uncomfortable. I mean, I, it was unclear from what she asked, but I think that was more what she asked, which I think you're right. I think the more interesting question is whether perhaps it went on too long, which uh, where it had gone past feeling uncomfortable and it became something else. And I, I don't think it did. It certainly didn't for me. But again, it's, it's very subjective. I don't know with the, kind it, of the there, baseline, there is, there, there something is. for everyone. There is an elast- elasticity to these responses, of course there is, and, and, and that's the problem when we start talking about psychological response to film, because there is a lot of elasticity to how it works, but there is definitely a point at which, uh, at which you've made your bed and it's time to move on, really, with pretty much anything you're doing. Um, but the question is, so what? After that, maybe your worst sin is you're just wasting time. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. What I was going to say was, does it does it ever sound like he's ever not trying to make a point, or is it a case of, you know, he's just doing it because that's how that's how long he thinks it should go on, you know, to to you know evoke that reaction in you? It's um, I don't know. I got I got the impression that was it that he he almost wanted to make sure you got that impression. Okay. Well, I mean, it, it wasn't really the question he was asked, but the the sense I got from him was that yes, he was making sure that everyone in the audience, even, yeah, even the people, slow people I, at the back of the room, <laughs> <laughs> that so, was probably me, I think, Brendan. But yeah, like, or, or you could say even the people I was going to say, people like me that have perhaps watched a few too many nasty films over the years, and it, maybe it take that little longer to seep in. But even uh, your corrupted morality gets affected. Oh, yeah, in the a little look. bit like that. But, <laughs> But I think another thing to quickly say is that it, it shouldn't be dwelled on, to, although obviously it is a really interesting topic to talk about, it shouldn't be dwelled on too long because although it is called The Killer Inside Me and obviously the violence is crucial to the film, that's not all of the film. And there is an interesting plot woven in and a really noiry little plot. I think actually the aesthetic's not that noiry, but the, the plotting is. And I think... Um, I, I really liked other elements of the film. Well, I, I didn't like the violence, but I found other elements of the film really good. And I think that there are mainly, I think, two violent moments uh, relatively bookended. So it's not something to dwell on for too long. It seems a shame if, if people just dismiss it as, you know, a sick, violent film. I can 
hear the Daily Mail decrying it already, but um, it'll be interesting. I think to see even how... the Observer wrote. You think even the Observer wrote a piece against it? I think there was a piece out in the Guardian today about misogynistic nature of the, of the film, and you know it certainly provoked the reaction. Maybe not the one that Winterbottom wanted, or maybe it was the exactly the reaction that he wanted. But it sounds like just to you know to dilute this to those you know to those events would, would be a shame but all right let's wrap that one up um let's come to the end of our of our film reviews for uh for the um for the episode uh, i think the killer inside me is out in the uk on the 8th of june um so do check it out if you fancy you know being pushed to the edge of your of your very moral limits so that should be good um we are going to move on now to a couple of bits of, of films and I think we are running quite long so we are just going to sort of just you know discuss them kind of briefly the first uh, was um, a bit of news that broke in the last couple of days it was um, the long anticipated uh, Logan's Run remake um, has found a director it appears that um, he's in talks anyway it's Carl Eric Rinch who um, the name may not be in completely familiar to you but um we um championed his short films part of the phillips parallel lines uh, short film competition um his uh, short was called the gift and if you haven't seen it search it on on how you guys cause it's a really really fantastic um futuristic tale with robots and russia and it's uh, and unicorns it's um it's really something else um and also he was tipped by ridley scott i think uh, originally to do the um the alien prequel of course that that is, is not going to happen now um but uh, very quickly, guys, Logan's Run, the Michael York film of '76. Uh, uh, are you a fan of it? Are you interested in the remake uh, and, and about the career of Carl Eric Wrench? Uh, Brendan, let's go with you. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of, of, of the original film, but I do think it has some potent and frightening ways of realising the frightening ideas at the heart of it. Carousel is creepy. Mm. The dis- dissolution by the Sandman is creepy. Some of the masks and, 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 and sort of. Um, you know, mise-en-scene is, is kind of upsetting in, 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 a, in a small way. Um, I remember when I was, I was you know, just getting old enough that I would have been flown into the air and exploded in carousel, and it, I, it's like my unconscious was waiting, and, and it was like, oh, uh, hang on. You know, the film lodged in there, and as I got older, it sort of came back to haunt me at, at that moment, right? Um, Carl Eric Rinch, um, he's definitely a capable stylist, Mm. Uh, what's he going to do with his film? I don't know. We don't really know if he can tell stories yet. Um, it would be interesting to see. I mean, he's taken over from Joe Kaczynski, who was last year's Carl Eric Rinch, who's now done uh, Tron. Mm. Um And, uh, you know, he was the last guy to come from a similar background that made stuff that looked a little bit Chris King- Cunningham-y that everybody fell over themselves for. Um but, you know, I sort of lament the fact that Brian Singer's not doing it still because I was interested in some of the specifics he pitched and, and, and him, you know, and I trust, I do trust Singer rather more than I do somebody untested. Sure. So, you know, but I'm optimistic. It might be great. Sure. And, and it'll upset another generation of young people. <laughs> Quite right, too. Because, of course, I'm now, I'm now older than 30, so I'm in perpetual fear of the disc on my hand turning red um craig what about you Logan's run carlo wrench what do you think um i'm still scared of that light uh i'm two years away so <laughs> You've got um time. when i was a kid yeah i've still got time but uh, when They're i was actually going to instigate it in 2011 <laughs> <laughs> um yeah when i was a kid i loved the film absolutely loved it and um i found carousel terrifying there's actually quite a few moments that when i was a kid i found quite scary but um yeah, I, I, as I grew up, I realised there were some slightly hokey elements, but I, I still still think it's pretty solid. Uh, 
yeah, it's got some some bits that aren't great, but yeah, like Brendan says, it's got some interesting ideas and it does some some interesting things with it. And uh, yeah, I think I could still probably watch it today and not really pick too many holes in it. And I think with regards to sequel, I think yeah, I mean Brendan's entirely right. He's he's relatively untested, so I mean style wise, it could look really good, but if he doesn't pull the story out well enough, it it could fail. But um, I think. I can't help but mirror what we kind of say every time there's a remake. It's if if it makes a good film, it's a good film, and then I won't care if it's a remake. But if it, they screw it up, it I think they screw it up a little bit more. Yeah, you could be right. Well, I mean, obviously, as as, as this develops, we'll be talking a bit more about it. I was a big fan of it. I did see it as a kid, and uh, of course, the age of thirty was was long, you know, in my future when I saw it. So I kind of just enjoyed the notion of. Um, uh, wasn't there a bizarre sur- uh, plastic surgery scene where the lasers all went wrong and they started killing people? With Farrah Fawcett Majors? Uh, yeah, 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 that's it. it can't was, forget uh, that bit. I can't forget that bit. And um, it, it, it was a bit of a yarn and, I, and I, I enjoyed it for what it was. I'm interested just because I like what I've seen so far of, uh, of Carl Oakridge in it. And as Brenda said, it's not it's not a huge amount. Um, so we can't tell what he's going to be doing with it. But I, I, I loved what, what I've seen of him. So he's got a film coming up before, I think, hasn't he? He's working on one now. Um, so I well, think... n- none of them have officially been greenlit. They're just in development phase. So it could be any or none of them. Okay, well, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Right, let's move on to our last bit of film news. Um, this is a bit of an odd one that kind of passed a lot of people by. Um, but I kind of picked up on it simply because of the person who was who was involved with it. Um, Sam Rockwell, whose career, you know, he's, he's, he's capable of so much. He can do Moon, he can do Iron Man 2, um, to various different degrees. And uh, he's uh, kind of um, emerged... Um, over the last decade or so, as one of the, you know, you know, our, our, our certainly one of our favourite actors on on how you guys and um, he's been linked with a project this week, which I'm not entirely familiar with. The first time I heard about it was when his name was put, um, you know, into orbit around it. Sweet baby Jesus. Now, Brendan, you wanted to chat about this one. Um, what do you know about the film and uh, and sort of Sam Rockwell's involvement in it? What's well, a contemporary telling of of the nativity? basically. Um, and Sam Rockwell's going to play Joe, and he's got a girlfriend called Mary, and he's taken her to Bethlehem, but this is Bethlehem in Maryland in the States. Um, and I think Bette Midler's in there as the, uh, as the innkeeper. So it's going to be, you know, a modern telling in the nativity. So I'd imagine we'll be seeing this at Christmas 2011. Um, what's interesting to me about it, um, beyond this sort of strange cast with Kim Cattrall and Pixie Lot, Pixie Lot. I know, I know. Yeah, it's a bit um, of a curious. What's she playing the ass? <laughs> um, Bill Nye's in there as well. Apart from this, it's uh, Peter Hewitt's directing it. Now, I, I've got this really strange relationship with Peter Hewitt. Now, Peter Hewitt's the guy who directed Garfield, mm-hmm. uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Whatever happened to Harold Smith? Um, Oh gosh! And, you know, and a few other, a few other uh, long lost films. And here's the thing about Peter Hewitt: if you know how films really get made, if you understand the process by which it really works, you'd cuddle this man and you'd send him chocolates, right? Because he's really quite talented, but he's never given any control over ninety percent of what happened. You know, he's not given script rewrite ability. He's not. He's not even fully in charge of the casting in his films. He's just, you know. Uh, a director hired to work and to do certain elements with where the camera is and how the design works. And he thinks properly cinematically, right? I'm not claiming Gilliam or anything, but uh, but he, he thinks like a real filmmaker and he understands some of how it works. Simple stuff sometimes, but it actually works. And the films aren't always great for whatever reason, right? 
but his work is always respectable. And I just wanna, I just wanna say, Pete, if you're out there listening to this, I know how hard you try, mate, and I know the work you do, and and I respect you a lot. I take my hat off to you. Okay, well that would be good. But if you are listening, then email in and uh, you know, maybe even come on if uh, Sweet Baby Jesus is uh, is ever out. That would be good to chat to you. And Brendan would, you know. Um, surely have a few good things to say to you i'm just interested in this because sam rock was in it i um i think he could bring an awful lot to it in what seems to me the most bizarre cast and a really curious little little plot um i assume that it's going to be um a yeah who'd make up a story like that exactly it's uh it's insane um don't read too much <laughs> well i was going to say yeah is it a comedy right it's a comedy yeah uh, no it's, it's it's really serious <laughs> it's <laughs> a documentary <laughs> <laughs> It's it, a it, but, like I, I had my mic muted, but I was laughing when Brendan was saying what it was about because I don't know, just something about it did make me laugh quite a bit already. But it, it, it is supposed to be a proper comedy, yeah. Well, um, you know, Bette Midler, Kim Cattrall, Pixie Lot. Well, you got Robbie Coltrane and Bill Nye supposed to be in there, so um, you know, I think you could definitely see someone like Sam Rockwell doing doing a bit of you know broad comedy. I think that yeah, he would do. Did it you see? Did you see um, Gentleman Broncos? No. Rockwell's mm. turn in that is clearly what sold him on it for this film. <laughs> okay, well, that's excellent. That's <laughs> I was wondering as well. Oh, actually, I've thought of another film that totally sells him on it, but if I say it, it, it I think it's a massive spoiler for the end of the film. Oh, really? It, it, it's Sam Rockwell and Jesus related, but um, I won't say oh, that. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay fair enough. Yeah, don't yeah. go too far <laughs> on that. But I understand where you come from. Okay, well, that's that. Uh, again, that's that's another film that's kind of you know currently being put together. So just kind of interesting. Um, uh, it's, uh, we see so many um, you know news items about potential castings. Like just today, there was like five people in in the pool for who the next you know Spider Man is going to be. In the same way that there was tons of names attached to Captain America before there was casting. So a lot of these um, stories just kind of, you know, just pass a lot of people by, or this one's actually kind of interesting because it's a really odd project and it's, you know, a really interesting, um, you know, actor involved. So any more about that and we'll, um, you know, and we'll obviously tell you about it. Um, That's it for the film news, guys. Uh, Let's move on to our final um, section of the show today, which as usual is our Ripped from the Crypt uh, section. This is where we champion a film that we're a big fan of and maybe hasn't had the love that it deserves. Uh, um, so we are going to talk about uh, one film each and as always when I put the post for the podcast up on the site we'll attach trailers, we'll attach um, any kind of links that you need um, and uh, and uh, so yeah, you can find everything about it there. Um, let's go with me first of all because I don't think I've gone first for a while. This is a bit of a uh, I, I don't think that, that this film is going to be particularly new to certainly to uh, to you guys, but it's something that I um, remember from from my childhood. I think it was um, uh, it was during our discussion of Prince of Persia when we talked about Disney and their and their live action um, you know arm that wasn't particularly doing you know great stuff. And it got me thinking about, you know, the notion of, uh, of, of Disney as a company, Disney as a you know, corporate entity, what kind of values and um, they're trying to put out into the world. Uh, some, you know, successfully and some not quite so successfully. So, and it, and it just pinged something in my mind that I remember a film uh, from the 80s, I think it was actually 1980, called uh, The Watcher in the Woods, which was put out by Disney. And it was... Um, uh, Kind of a bizarre tale. Um, it was kind of a, uh, it, it was a, a, a kind of basic um, you know ghost ghost story, but there were some elements to it 
which uh, which make it kind of um, a bit more of an interesting film. First of all, it was Disney, and there was some very creepy uh, material in this film. Um, and if you look back at uh, sort of the eighties um, and Disney's live action output, there were things like um, the Devil and, and Max Devlin, and there were the Black Hole. There were certain. It was kind of a period where they were kind of trying to be a, a, a touch more mature. I think was kind of you know the the, the angle they were going in. Um, I can't imagine a film like The Watcher in the Woods. Um, necessarily coming out from Disney today but um, to give a vague um, synopsis of the of the film it's um, a family basically buy a house in, in England this was it was filmed in Pinewood and it just looks fantastic in, and, and all the grounds of Pinewood are there as well they, they also play a really really important part being you know part of the title and the two girls of this family start to notice um, strange things happening. Um, they think that they see someone in the woods watching them, so it's kind of obvious. Um, but also there are moments where they look in mirrors and they see the ghostly image of, of a girl, um, you know, blindfolded, screaming to be sort of uh, let out, if you like. So, um, And that, that, that moment in the film just... it. it killed me when I saw it as a kid and it, and it still has kind of a similar effect today it's really really unnerving um, and it turns out that there was, a, there was a girl who was missing it's the daughter of the, um, of the person that they're actually buying the house from and slowly the, um, the story kind of unfolds as to what happened to this uh, what happened to this um, you know this girl and it's kind of like you know figuring out what happened and then at the end they try and get her back from wherever she's gone um, before I talk a bit more about the ending because that's kind of vaguely interesting um, Craig Brendan, have you have you seen this one? Yep. And do you like it? I love it. Good, good. Um, would you agree that it is kind of um, relatively, you know, dark considering that it's a Disney film? Um, maybe, maybe. I mean, John John Hoff, who or Huff or How Huff, John Hoff, <laughs> one of the three, it, had done Return from Witch Mountain for Disney just a couple of years before, and and that's kind of halfway there, right? I mean, it's like he sort of took them halfway there. There was some genuine menace and, and, and peril in that film mm. as the, the BBFC would, would call it peril um, and uh, you know there is something a little more sinister about this but, but it's, it's kind of in keeping with a lot of young young kids literature mm. do you know what I mean a lot of books for kids sort of play with ghosts and the supernatural I'm reluctant to say but but you know what I mean in a mm. similar sort of way um, yeah so um yeah, maybe maybe a little maybe a little creepy. Again, I don't think anything Disney ever did was as creepy as their first two or three animated feature films, right? Mm. Like like Snow White and and um, Pinocchio, just like Whoa. and Bambi. I mean, you know, how many years did Bambi go on seeing because it was traumatizing kids? But I do think there is a little um, a, a sort of a Doctor Who style understanding that you can scare kids and it's and that's a good thing yeah. in this film. Definitely, and I mean, it, well, I was watching it again recently. The DVD was finally put out, I think, at sort of two thousand and two, and there was um, it was a chance for me to revisit it. I, I don't think I'd you know seen it. I didn't have it on video. I didn't have a chance to see it before, and it, and it still kind of jumped out at me. There was still it's 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 the kind of a film that you should probably see as a kid because it does um, evoke some of the sort of you know very. Um, you know, childhood fears that you have in terms of fear of new places, fear as you know, fears of being isolated, all that kind of stuff, and also fears of um, you know being able to, uh, or rather, fears of distrusting your parents, realizing that that the older generations who are supposed to be respected, you know, end up having all you know sort of secrets of their own. But Craig, have you seen this one? Um, I haven't actually. I I, th- I fear I might upset Brendan, but I. Generally, although with some very notable exceptions, I don't really like Disney films. Um, 
Is that animation and live action or just... Both, yeah. I mean, I, even when I was a kid, I wasn't that big a fan. I, I, I mean, weirdly, I always loved Robin Hood uh, when I was a kid. But aside from that, though, I don't really remember there being that many that I watched Should more than once or I... even particularly liked. I mean, it, it's a bit of an oddity. I, I liked Mary Poppins, but I don't. I did, certainly didn't love it. And I mean, um, yeah. I so I there's a lot of Disney films that, to be honest, are probably missing from my uh, my <laughs> films that I've watched. That sounds really like my cup of tea though i remember when when i was a kid i absolutely loved a kind of a strange i don't think it really is a genre i think in my head it was a genre of films where a kid finds out that you can't really trust its parents mm. or even a person finds out uh, especially if the parents turn out to not be really your parents uh, yeah, i don't know funny. that says a hell of a lot psychologically about me <laughs> sure but, does, yeah. uh, invaders from mars uh, invaders from mars was one of my favorite <laughs> yes. films when i was a kid i know exactly the, what you're talking the about. whole premise about the dad not being his dad or or him thinking he might not be his dad is just terrifying i just always i think it's a horrible concept to think that the people in power mm. whether it's parents or or i mean invasion of the body snatchers as well, mm. as well films like that do that really well the idea that people in power are not who they say they are and might have an ulterior motive is quite scary. Excellent. Well, I think you will absolutely love this one. I mean, just to kind of, um, to, to end it, I, I would heartily recommend it to people just because it's a, it's a genuinely spooky, um, spooky tale. And there was, um, there, there's a, there's a kind of a nice, um, story about the, the ending, which because of time constraints, I'm not going to go on, um, about on the podcast, but I'll, I'll add something into the podcast post because there was a bit of a, uh, you know, a bit of a, a fuss about the original ending and, um, and everything, but let's move on from the watcher in the well, woods. Well, let me, let me just say, of course, the reason you've chosen this, John, very cleverly, is that the BFI are having a season of Brian Clemens' works in July, and Clemens wrote the screenplay. That's exactly why I did it. You know, I'm glad I that thought, you picked I up thought it was because I thought it was because the director directed Howling Four, and you you really love films about wolves. <laughs> yeah, that's that's yeah that as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think Brendan's reason is much better. I think it is, but um, I don't think I've seen Howling Four, which is a, which is a, you know a shame. Unless someone's going to recommend that on there, from the crypt. Um, okay, let's move on. Um, Craig, let's go with your one. What's your rip from the crypt this week? Right. Well, I had a different one until about ten minutes ago when I just read that um, it was someone's birthday this week, uh, a director, and I thought I'm I can't help but pick uh, one of his films and one of my favourites because of that. Um, it was the 87th birthday of uh, Seijin Suzuki this week. Um, I'd actually kind of sworn to myself I wasn't going to pick another Japanese film for a couple of weeks, but um, I couldn't help it. Um, and it's a film called Branded to Kill. Um, it's not that rare, I would say, and not that unknown, but there are a surprising amount of people that I've come across who haven't seen it, so uh, I thought it was definitely worth a recommendation to fill in the blanks for anyone who hasn't seen it. Give us a bit of an idea about the, the, the director and about the film itself. Um, well, Siege and Suzuki started working uh, over, I would say, over 50 years ago, and... Um, he worked under Nakatsu uh, Studio, uh, making a variety of uh, reasonably cheap genre pieces. Um, he's still making films, kind. I think, as far as I know, still making films. He had a film out quite reasonably recently. Um, so he's doing very well at A7. Um, the film itself is uh, about a, a hitman. Well, it's about a group of hitmen uh, that number themselves essentially so you will have the number one killer and he's the best 
and <laughs> this killer is not the number one killer, but he fails in a mission and the number one killer goes after him. Um, the, it's the star of the film and this, this guy that you follow is, is played by Joe Shishido, who, um, if you're not really familiar with Japanese cinema, he's, he's an actor who played kind of hide goons a lot and then he had a very strange plastic surgery. Um, he was told that I think kind of that his cheekbones weren't good enough so in order to improve his face, he had a plastic surgery uh, to kind of puff out his cheeks. But the effect of it is that he kind of looks very hamsterish. Um, he has really puffy cheeks, uh, which is quite strange. But at the same time, Joe Shishido is incredibly cool. Um, so it's really weird and a bit of an oddity. So if anyone does watch it, don't don't start watching it and think, what the hell's wrong with his cheeks? Because that, that is just what he looks like. That's just well, Oh my Chico. god, it's the woman from behind the radiator and a razor head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice crossover. Okay. Yeah, nice. Um, but yeah, I, I think one of the elements of the film that's probably going to resonate most with people is the look. Seijin Suzuki is an incredible stylist. He made another film, uh, uh, another crime film, a Mori Yakuza film called Tokyo Drifter. Which um, where this film is in very stark black and white um, with a very kind of film noir lighting to it to an incredible like nth degree the lighting and uh, the style uh, Tokyo Drifter by which I I can recommend as well is um, really garish bright colours and I think Seijin Suzuki is in, stylishly is an incredible filmmaker for that he can he can really do some. I mean, in a way, sometimes fun things with the way he makes his films. There's some scenes in Tokyo Drifter that are just you just can't believe them when you see them. But um, Branded to Kill, I think, is his best film, and it's it's just stunning. It impresses me every time I see it. I just uh, yeah, I love it totally. Okay. And that's the um, I'm checking out on IMDb. That's 1967. Um, yeah. The film. Okay. What we'll do is we'll we'll, we'll find. It, it's um. It's also available on DVD in the UK, but if you have a multi-region player. Um, there's a Criterion DVD of it, which is certainly worth getting. Excellent choice and the money. And I think, although I'm not sure if it works in the UK, but if we've got US listeners, it might work in the UK. You can watch it for about five dollars on uh, on Criterion. You can oh, stream excellent. it online. Okay, sounds good, Brendan. Uh, quickly, what's your take on this? Have you seen it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think he's he's definitely got away with forcing symmetries and sort of graphic. Uh, shot designs, which is very striking. Um, I think he's an interesting stylist. Um, he's got over dependence on the zoom. That makes me froth a little bit. <laughs> yeah. um, um, I do think that there is, though, a very uh, holistic, stylistic plan at work. You know, from the costume to the to the camera angle to to the lighting, uh, which is pretty cogent. Um, I, I, I don't know. I do like I like this film in particular. I I, I like Tokyo Drifter too. I like them both. Um, and 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 his most two most recent films. I mean, he's made two films in the last ten years to reflect on what what Craig said. And the one in in two thousand or so was a film called Pistol Opera, which is a kind of sequel. It's sort of sort of a sequel to Branded to Kill. Yeah, um, it kind of replays the same ideas more than sequel well i mean in i a mean sense, it was pitched as a sequel wasn't it but yeah but i mean it's I, th- I think it's intended to be a reprise almost in a sense that that it's sort of 
it's happening again in a funny sort of way. If you understand what I mean? Um, I, I don't know what I don't. We, we, I'm getting so close to spoiler territory. I don't really want to say too much, but um, you could quite easily have had the same characters in it, but you didn't. But the through line is the the same. Okay, well that sounds. Um, I mean, that's another one of the uh, one of Craig's Japanese uh, oddities that, that I certainly have got to say. Yeah, um, th- there's um, uh, you know a few of his earlier films which are, are particularly worth looking up as well, but it just seems to be that his most almost pop arty or almost op arty sort of titles are the ones that have got the the biggest acclaim and, and people like Criterion fall over themselves for. But I, I'm kind of I'm kind of interested in his. Slightly less controlled films sometimes as well. I think he um, Underworld Beauty is definitely worth checking out as well. If you're especially a film noir fan, and uh, Take Aim at the Police fan is pretty good for action. Um, but I also I wanted to say just briefly that um, it's also very notable for two reasons. One that he got fired, as far as I know, for the film not making any sense, <laughs> and also that it's very. Uh, important, I think, probably to note is that, that there's a lot of directors that talk about this film a lot, and it's a big influence. And you'll certainly see uh, through lines to films like um, uh, Jim Jamush's Ghost Dog. Uh, there's even a shot that's straight out of the film uh, that's almost replicated. So it's worth looking out for that as well. Okay, perfect. Thank you. We'll, we'll stick a, like I said, we'll stick a trailer and whatever we can. Maybe even a picture of the of the cool hamster dude uh, on the side. That would be wicked. <laughs> Um, <laughs> next to Alvin and the Chipmunks. Okay, uh, let Brendan. Um, let's have your rip from the crypt to wrap up. Okay, uh, mine was influenced by reading Craig's Tumblr account this week. <laughs> he keeps a record of the films that he's been watching, and he mentioned that he'd seen American Splendor. Um, and I thought, oh, okay, uh, some love for for Toby Radloff, I think. And I'll tell you something about Toby Radloff. Toby Radloff is an actor. Um, and he's a character in American Splendor because he was a friend of Harvey Picard, the comic book author that the, the film is about. And if you see the movie American Splendor, you see Radloff appearing as himself, but you also see him played by Judah Freelander. Um, and uh, though he's appeared in a few films, the two that I would like to recommend are the Killer Nerd films, which you can buy as a sort of a flipper disc from Troma. Uh, I'm sat here now looking at the cover and it's really quite cute and I don't really know any other way to put it because it's just so absolutely unaffected and he's just turning up and making a film and having a whale of a time um, he, he does suffer from, from Asperger's and quite quite extremely um, and he's always characterised himself as a nerd, he's a self-identified nerd in real life, is, is, is Radloff and what's his, uh, he's got the, the badge in American Splendor, genuine nerd badge um, and, and I've met him um, and my wife's had some very long conversations because when I met her she lived in Cleveland that's where he is, they, 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 they hung out uh, at the film festival together they went to the, to the, to the same church and, and, and so on so um, uh, he's you know, I can tell you firsthand, he's exactly, they, I mean, he's just, he's just just absolutely that disarming and that completely fresh and honest every time you meet him. And the Killer Nerd films cast him effectively as himself, um, <laughs> but he sort of snaps, okay? So it's like, it's like if you imagine Death Wish filtered through 
like like Asperger's uh, and made by people who do not have the first idea of how to make a film. Not even the remotest notion of how filmmaking works. Then you know what Killer Nerd is. And because it's so genuinely effectless, it's almost like it reminds me of something like the like the, the, the spazzing thing in the idiots. Do you know what I mean? Where where there's absolutely no there's no level of there's it's just back to basic principles, but without the pretense of putting it on, it's just the most naive film in all of existence, I swear. <laughs> okay, it sounds good. I've not heard of it. Craig, are you are you in any way? Uh, um, it's, it's. I've heard it before. It's it's trauma and it's uh, Toby Radcliffe. So I shall be watching it. Um, I have you seen the documentary about him, Brendan? Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. Pretty sure I've got the documentary, but I haven't watched it yet. Right, um, it I'm, was. I'm insanely jealous, actually, that you've met him. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I actually stood and talked to him before. Um, I think it was a screening of. Uh, Brothers of the Head at the Cleveland Film Festival. He was going to something else, and I was going to that, and um, we just stood and talked, and I thought we were going to talk for two minutes, but he would not let me go. He had so much to tell me. He wanted to tell me everything. And, and it's just so it's just so strange, because, like, I mean, the, the movie theatre in American Splendor where he goes to watch Revenge of the Nerds is the movie theatre where my wife watched American Splendor. So I'm caught in this sort of really strange <laughs> meta loop, and I'm recommending a film in which he plays himself, but it isn't him, it's a fiction, and uh, I, I don't really know what's real anymore. So please, people anchor me to reality by also watching Killer Nerd and sort of getting it out of this loop cycle that I'm caught in. But, um... Radloff's wonderful, and 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 um, I, I've now actually seen anything with him in, um, and uh, I, I just I yeah, you'll love him. Okay, so that's not only a recommendation for a film, but also for a person as well. So if you ever meet him, then he's going to be a great guy. Seriously, so we're not literally ripping him from a crypt or anything, but it's you know it's kind of along the same lines. So, um, all right, Brendan, thanks for that. Like I said, again, we'll, we'll stick trailers up um, and everything else uh, on the podcast post when it goes up on the site. Okay, guys, let's draw it to a close because it's um, it's running epically long um, at the moment. Thanks so much for your opinions, for your uh, for your views, and for your rip from the crypt recommendations. Um, we will be doing one of these uh, next week where uh, from now on we're going to try and put a theme to our rip from the crypt so um, what we'll do is we'll we'll, we'll, we'll figure one out for next week and then we'll uh, obviously do it on the podcast if you have any suggestions either go to the forum uh, on heyyouguys.co.uk or uh, just email them in you can always email us at mouthoff at heyyouguys.co.uk like I said you can check out everything uh, heyyouguys.co.uk and uh, we're on Twitter at heyyouguysblog we're on Facebook as well so now there's no Uh, excuse not to get in touch with us okay thanks very much as always guys we will see you all next week bye